So Wes, have you ever owned a Windows phone? Oh, I was hoping you weren't going to ask me that. I'm ashamed <laughs> to say yes. Okay, I mean, it was it was a significant other at the time, but there was one in my household, and I, I definitely played with it a little. But you don't have access to it anymore then? No, although I am curious, there was some news out this week. Microsoft, I, they've, they've just kind of abandoned that whole platform, right? But they were producing new phones. They were still getting sold, so there's still relatively recent Windows phones out there. If you had one of the Lumia-branded smartphones, which I did, there was already a jailbreak, so you could actually do something useful with this unsupported hardware that you've probably either subsidized or paid directly for. But now, thanks to actually a secure boot flaw, which I think is hilarious considering how much work Microsoft put into to making that standard, thanks to that, now on any Qualcomm-based, which is basically every single one, any Qualcomm-based Windows phone, there's a jailbreak. Yeah, I'm sure that devs will be rushing to port ROMs to it. Yeah, probably not. But if you have something like an HP Elite X3 or HTC One M8, I did see that one out. That was kind of popular. Maybe more so on, uh, you know, a better operating system. But you get what you pay for. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 283 for January 8th, 2019. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to your weekly Linux talk show that's put Chris out to pasture this week. My name is Wes. And my name is Joe. Thanks for joining us, Joe, especially since I know you have a new toy you would probably rather be playing with. Yep. But you're here. You're helping out. Chris is traveling. He's already told us all about his adventures. But meanwhile, well, there's a whole bunch of community news to talk about. Some big changes planned or not planned for the upcoming Fedora releases. And... There's a shiny new kernel coming soon with a brand new major version number. Then, those old GNU projects, they've got releases too. It's just that time of the year. And one of them, well, it's that Bash shell, which we all know and love. Speaking of shells, we had an opportunity to sit down and talk with one of the developers of the Fish Shell, one of my personal favorite shells. We've also got a discussion coming up about, with the success of Proton, are there still problems lurking at the heart of gaming on Linux? And, contributing even more, Joe had a chance to sit down and get some information about just what's going on with Adobe. Is there any chance of Creative Cloud coming to Linux? But before we get into any of that, well, we're going to need a little help from our Mumble Room. Time-appropriate greetings, Mumble Room. Hello there. Hello. Hello. Oh, aren't you guys the best? All right, let's just get started. We talked about this back in Linux Unplugged 277, and there was some there was some chatter going on about Fedora 31. And was it going to be delayed by a half year? Were they going to break the six-month release cycle? They've been discussing this since November. Turns out, no, they're not. Yeah, this was a bit of a surprise, wasn't it? Because Matthew Miller came on and talked about all the good reasons they were doing this with all the retooling and the fact that they really needed time to just wait for the release and concentrate on that retooling. But it seems that maybe they're just going to have to get on with it and double up their work. Yeah, as Paul Fields explained, after talking with the council, as well as some of the folks who are depending on the cadence, like especially they highlight IoT here, it was clear we need to look at, at we, we need to look at this option. But for now... We're not going to have any cadence changes. There's no changes for cadence. There's no objective requirements from them. Unless more specific reasons are given, 
we're not adopting this at this time, which, okay. Uh, you know, it did seem like there was a little discussion about clearly there's a lot of underpinnings in, in sort of just how Fedora gets made, right? The, the build processes, the CICD infrastructure, all the stuff behind the scenes. I know there were particularly concerns about unblocking more community management, you know, tying it less to maybe some specific resources that just Fedora team members have. That's all important work. I guess there just wasn't enough of an argument about really breaking from the release cycle because even though it's not always perfect, it is something a lot of people depend on. But this does go to show that Fedora does everything in the open, including making major decisions like this. It was proposed, there was a lot of support for it, we thought it was going to happen, but ultimately there was discussion and the consensus was against it. I suppose this kind of thing would probably happen in quite a lot of projects, certainly in proprietary software, and we'd just never hear about it. Yeah, that's a great point, right? If, if, it, if it was in a, in a private company and we didn't hear about the first part, well, we wouldn't have never heard about it. It would have just been released and no news story. It also goes to show that Fedora, well, they don't, they don't stand still. And that's a good thing, right? There's a lot of great innovations coming from Fedora. This next story is maybe an area where they're playing catch-up. So we've already talked about all the data collection, and Linux for a long time has kind of been an environment where, you know, you had, you had a little bit of privacy on your desktop. There was a big hullabaloo about Ubuntu adding more data collection to the installer, and now Fedora developers are looking at implementing a per-system UUID identifier leveraged exclusively by DNF, their package manager, in order to more accurately count their user base. So what do you think about this? Do you think that the controversy is justified, or do you think that... There's uh, nothing to say here. Move along. My mature opinion after thinking about it for a while is going to have to be the second one, but I think it's a question worth asking. Like, I, I don't think it's nonsense to bring up the topic. I think it, it, the way that they've implemented it seems like it's going to be okay, though. Uh, they're, not, they're not reusing these UUIDs. It's not being, their intention is not to try to identify you as a user. Mostly, they've seen a lot of problems of trying to count stuff like, you know, if you install six piece copies of Fedora behind a NAT at your house, well, that, that counts as one, even if it was your roommate installing that. They've also added a couple controls around, is this just like a short-lived environment, something like a container versus an actual, you know, maybe a server install or a desktop workstation? That all seems like data that would help them a lot. And personally, I'm okay giving up. Yeah, I don't have any problem with this. And I think they kind of deserve the the metrics, don't they? If you're working hard at making an operating system, you kind of want to know how many people are using it. It's like counting the download numbers for a podcast. We know roughly how many people download the shows that we do, but we have no idea about any of the people unless they write in specifically to talk to us. And I do trust Fedora to do this properly. They will do it all in the open, and they'll make sure that this data isn't misused, but then they can actually use it to do good things, like concentrate on the areas where the users are. And, and potentially even concentrate on areas where they want to get new users. Yeah, right. That is the that is sort of the flip side is for that you have good metrics about what people are using or uh, you know what user bases are growing that can that can help the limited resources that are available for development. Yeah, and it's a shame to see so much controversy about it. People will just get up in arms about anything, won't they? Yes, they will. They also get rather excited about just about anything. Uh, and that's probably going to be true about the upcoming Linux release, Linux 5.0. Yeah, this was going to be uh, 4.21. I, I thought it was actually going to be the 4.20, but um, it seems that they wanted to 4.20 represent. So, uh, yeah, Linus has decided that 4.21 will actually now be 5.0. And there's quite a lot 
that's actually gone into this or that's going to be going into it, quite a lot of graphics stuff specifically. Oh yeah, there is a lot of graphics changes. I also noticed that the Raspberry Pi touch display is finally getting mainlined. Hey, that's nice to see. Yeah, that's long overdue, but yeah, good to see now. The other one that stood out to me is this new large version of the Terminus console font that you can optionally compile in. That's going to be useful if you've got one of those fancy high DPI displays and you'd actually like to be able to use the regular terminal before you get to your graphical environment. No, I wouldn't know about those high DPI displays, Wes. No, I wouldn't, but that's one of those reasons, right? They're just not, it's not quite working well enough, and since we are something of a terminal-forward operating system, it's nice to see this somewhat first class. That's true, but I think there are other high DPI concerns before that. Oh, that's true, but this one's a low-hanging fruit. Yeah. Uh, the other good part that uh, probably needed to get some work seen in general is work to remove some of the performance hits from Spectre and Meltdown bug mitigation, in particular some of the network performance problems that came from Google's RIT polling fix. That's just going to be good. I mean, as long as security isn't compromised, we'd like it to be both secure and fast. Have we had a kernel release since the beginning of last year that hasn't had some sort of mitigations in it? If so, it was there were pretty few and far between. Yeah. And I imagine 2019 is going to just be more of the same. Yep. But it's very arbitrary, isn't it? As Linus says, um, it's really just he ran out of fingers and toes to count the number on, and that's why he iterated it up to five. But it, there is something psychological about that, isn't there? When the new distros come out with a 5.0, anything with 4. whatever is going to seem old and crusty. Yes, it will. And especially, you know, I mean, the kernel has just had such an interesting history. There was the, you know, the, the two days, which lasted just forever, and now we're burning through version numbers. I think, you know, for, for us people familiar with it, it doesn't really matter. Once you realize it doesn't really matter, you just pay attention to, you know, the release notes and what's going on with the kernel, you'll be fine. Outsiders, though, it might be a little bit confusing, especially, you know, things keep changing. We have we have the Chrome-style version numbers, we have uh, more semantic versioning style, and then other projects are just all over the place. You know which project I love for version numbers? System D. It's just so straightforward. It's just a whole number, and it just keeps going up and up and up. No points, releases, no confusion. It's just whatever the number is, add one to it. Yeah, that's a system even I can understand. <laughs> yeah, that's the one good thing about System D. Ooh, Ooh Joe. Ouch. <laughs> okay, well, speaking of confusion, we've got a little update from the corrections department today. Yeah, so on the last episode, which I was nothing to do with whatsoever... Didn't touch it one bit. No, no. You talked about this blog post on the Clear Linux blog that was written by Ike and Aoki, and uh, talking about how Clear Linux was going to go and concentrate on the desktop and have all this um, remote desktop stuff. And you guys got pretty excited about that, specifically because Chris had been tipping Clear Linux to be the next big thing. Well, it turns out that blog post was, uh, it was a couple of days old, was it? Maybe a few hundred days old? Yeah, I mean, uh, published April 22nd, 2016. Ah, uh, uh, right. So, yeah, almost three years ago. Uh. Yeah, after that, in 2017, they uh, uh, switched to GNOME, obviously, uh, as we know from using it and, and reviewing it. Yeah, so that's uh, not very good of us, really. That was kind of all of our faults. Chris said that we can throw him under the bus because he is ultimately responsible. Um, but really, I'm going to blame Marius Quarbeck because someone sent it to him. He sent it to me. I posted it in our Slack. You guys read it and then talked about it. And along that whole chain, nobody stopped to look at the date. So 
It's quite embarrassing, really. It very much is, and and something we you know try very hard not to have happen. And generally, we have a chain of trust, right? And uh, we only refer links that you've at least somewhat read or vetted or thought this might be interested. And this time, no one, no one did it. It was just it had been discussed. There was excitement around it, and that was too much for us. So we're we're sorry about that. Uh, I also I just appreciate the corrections on it, though. We want to we want to be accurate. And we want to make mistakes. Well, we've got to own it. I will also say a lot of the stuff that uh, it talked about in the article, XFCE things. That's maybe the silver lining here is XFCE still does make a great remote server desktop. Yep, yeah, it does. I think from now on you're going to have to write some sort of script to check all these links, go through and grab the date or something. You know, that was kind of my instinct as well. Just a, <laughs> like a link verifier or something, uh, a procedure to go yeah. through and make sure we're always up to date. Yeah. Well, you've probably noticed, dear audience, that Joe stepped in today, and we're very grateful. That's because Chris, well, he's on the road. And once again, you can follow right along. If you go to our show notes, linuxunplugged.com slash 283, you'll find a link to the Rover Tracker. That lets you be as creepy as you like. Surprise Chris while he's out shopping or just trying to live his life. No, no. But it will help you find out where he is. Follow along. He's tweeting updates, real cute updates with some Levi pictures. So go check those out too. Yeah, he's in California at the moment. And I'm very jealous because the weather's probably a lot better than it is here. You know, I'm sure it is. I'm I'm trying to get back at him in my own small way, though, for abandoning us in the rain and the drizzle and the cold. Uh, and that's because, as you know, Chris is something of a nano fan, and I just can't abide that. I mean, you're, we're all welcome to our editors, of course. That's that's just an intrinsic free choice that we all have inside of us. But when you have workstations that don't have Vim on them, kind of upsets me. So while he's been away, I've been making sure every darn computer in this place has Vim installed. <laughs> so I was thinking about editors, right? And I, I just... I'm faster at it. How do you get to the bottom of a file in Nano? Am I just like paging down like an animal? I just don't get it. You know, I've got a great idea, Wes. While you're installing it, alias Nano to Vim. Oh, that's evil. I'm not sure he would forgive me on that one. (laughs) Thankfully, he can figure it out and fix it himself. Yeah, true. Although, how would he edit the config file? (laughs) (laughs) I think he at least he's got a GUI on these machines, so he could probably pull up uh, everyone's favorite, Kate. No, G-Edit, that's everyone's favorite. Ooh, yeah, G-Edit, timeless classic. Speaking of timeless classics, another recent release caught my eye, and that's GNU-Ed 1.15. As you probably already know, or probably don't, Ed is a line-oriented text editor. It's used to create, display, modify, and otherwise manipulate text files if you're a sadist. Now, of course, no one really uses Ed anymore, uh, unless you're in a very particular, maybe an embedded environment. But I'm sure there are thousands of shell scripts out there that still make use of it in some way and have been ported from a legacy Unix environment and probably still work. Well, should I be embarrassed that I'd never heard of this until you put it in the show, Doc? You know, honestly, I don't think you should. It just won't, it won't come up. It's an interesting piece of Unix history and trivia, still getting updates to this day. But you'll, you would just never have any occasion to use it, you know? Uh, especially these days with rich text editors, you probably do a bunch of composition on a website. So Ed is about the complete opposite. It's not the only GNU release, though, is it? No, no, it's not, Joe. This one, I think you probably have heard of. It's the Bash shell. The Born Again shell, a complete implementation of the POSIX shell spec. 5.0, they've got a bunch of new, interesting, supported variables. A lot of people had actually been using um, Bash compiled before the official release because some distributions wanted these features. 
which that's understandable. But now they're official. They're out. You can go get it. Uh, they've got some nice new substitution variables. Uh, the random variable works pretty nicely these days. Every time you call it, you get a new random number. Hey, that's nice. And I think it's just nice to see that such a fundamental tool that makes up, you know, even even in the days of uh, containers running on virtual infrastructure as as functions that live for like 10 seconds, there's still a whole bunch of bash in like half of those. Yeah, but commonwise, who is still using bash at this point? I think a lot of people, you know, as a, um, let's say, prosumer on the desktop, shell switching, uh, it, it can be something that's pretty fun and useful. But when you're, you know, in the admin server side, there's a lot of, there's a lot of pressure against that sort of thing, mostly because, well, bash is everywhere. It's already installed. I think that's less of a problem now that, you know, Linux is kind of one. There's this, there's a homogeneity about the marketplace that you might not have had in the days of Solaris or HPUX or any of the other uh, bigger Unix distributions. But if you're just a user, maybe you're maybe you're just a developer, you don't have root on a bunch of these boxes, Bash is going to be the shell you have, so you, you probably have to know it. Yeah, I mean, I was only joking, really. The thing is, it's ubiquitous, isn't it? It's even on Macs and on the Windows subsystem for Linux. It's just everywhere, Bash. Yeah, and, you know, there are some more minimal shells, things, things like Dash, of course, classic SH that you could use. But I think we're stuck with Bash for the time being. But you don't have to be, you know, on your own. And I, I don't frequently change shells on, on servers unless it's a server I either use all the time or use very infrequently. But for home machines, you know, if, if I'm doing some processing, if I'm really getting getting some work done and I need some specific Bashisms or I just know how to do that really well in Bash, well, you, you know, it's one command away. You just type whatever your shell, you just type Bash and hit enter and you've got a Bash shell. That's why on a lot of my machines, well, I'm running the Fish shell. And as rightly pointed out by many people, Fish, it's not its not POSIX compliant. It does things a little bit differently. And for the old guard, you might not be comfortable with it because it'll break a lot of assumptions. But I think for someone new, someone you're trying to get on Linux, maybe they're interested in learning a little bit about the command line. Maybe they're interested in development or learning administration or anything like that. They just want to play with their computer, but they haven't had, you know, 10 years of using a command line before, Fish really is friendly. It's called the Friendly Interactive Shell, and I think that it really does live up to that. You've got stuff like easy, you know, easy history searching automatically. It's also got, like, smart directory memory, so it knows if you run a command frequently inside a certain path, well, that command will just surface up automatically. I'm curious, Joe, do you use Fish at all? I have tried it before, and I did find it very useful, but... It's not something that really stuck with me. I think that it's just a case of Bash is just there. It's always there, on no matter what machine you're on. And that extra little step to get Fish installed is just a bit of a blocker. I just forget to do it, and, and then I just haven't got into the rhythm of using it. But you've kind of pushed over that hump, haven't you? And it's kind of your daily driver shell. Once, once you get used to it, it's not on all of my machines, as I said, but... For just like simple common command line tasks, it's really it's really hard to beat because it is friendly. It'll remember commands. So if you don't, if you haven't taken the time to make a whole bunch of complicated aliases on that machine, it's got your back on those. And well, it just had a release. This was uh, just at the end of December, right before the new year. Fish three zero zero was released. Now there's some backwards incompatibility, so you're gonna want to go you read the release notes if you're a big Fish shell user. That said, they obviously have their eye on stability, so those are just kind of only the things they had to change. There's also some good news. A lot of people, as someone in the IRC just pointed out, previously, Fish wouldn't let you use double ampersand 
for like an, an and command as you would traditionally do with the bash shell, and they wanted you to use the literal word and, they've added that syntax. So there's actually a lot of new changes that are really friendly for people coming from POSIX. So I think now is probably a better time than ever to talk about Fish Shell and to tr- give it a try. Because of that, we were lucky enough to be joined by Peter, one of the developers of the Fish Shell. He came on and chatted with Chris and I before Chris left. Let's hear, let's hear a little bit more from that. Anybody that's listened to Linux Unplugged for a long time knows that Wes and I are both daily drivers of the Fish Shell. We love Fish. And we wanted to bring on one of the core members of the project to just talk about a little bit after their new release. Peter, welcome to Linux Unplugged. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Oh, no. No, thank you for making it, especially sort of last minute when this just crossed our mind after the new release. But I thought, Peter, instead of me saying it in any kind of ham-fisted way that I might explain it, uh, from your own words, uh, how do you describe Fish Shell? What is the Fish Shell? Sure. So Fish is a command line shell like Bash. Uh, if you are a Mac user and you launch the terminal app or iTerm, or you're a Linux user and you launch uh, Xterm or Kitty or whatever, you have a program which draws uh, the window frame and it has some text in it, renders the text, and that's called the terminal emulator. And the shell is the program inside that is running inside the terminal emulator that will receive the text that you input, and then based on that, decide what commands to run. So a lot of users are initially confused about the distinction between the terminal emulator and the shell. And Fish is, occupies the same space as Bash, as Z Shell, as, as some other ones like TCSH. I like that explanation. That's probably uh, much better than the one I would have given. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> so I guess I have to ask you the biggest question on my mind, and that is... How do you get people to use Fish Shell? Because everybody's just got Bash by default now. Bash is sort of the default, and default is sort of supreme. And uh, Fish Shell is an alternative to that. And in most cases, or maybe in a lot of cases at least, people might not even be aware that they can switch a shell. So uh, how does Fish Shell fit in with that? How, how does that work? How does that? I guess the better way to put that is, you, you, how do you feel? How do you feel about the fact that Bash may always remain dominant and supreme, um, and some people may not even know they can switch? Does that affect the way you work on the project? Does that affect you in any way? That seems like a major elephant in the room with a project like this. Yeah, that's that's a great question. Uh, driving adoption is certainly a, a, a challenge for our project uh, for the reason you said. Bash is very entrenched, and shells are like text editors. They're very personal. You when you, you develop a lot of techniques and muscle memory to uh, use your these tools day to day, and it's very that makes it a challenge to switch because when you try a new project, it feels unfamiliar, right? The things you're used to don't work. The the um, none of your muscle memory applies, or less of it applies, and there's surprises. And so one of the one of the ways that we try to address that in the fish shell is we try to identify the features that users miss from Bash the most, and then we add them in. Oh. And we do, we're conservative about, about that. We do that slowly, but uh, that's, that's one of the ways that we can help make users feel more comfortable initially. It also helps that uh, Bash is missing out on a lot of user-friendly features, features that are, are p- part of the fish shell. We say that uh, fish shell is a command line shell for the 90s. That, yeah. that, that illustrates that there's... Uh, in a lot of ways, command line shells are stuck in the past, but we think that Bash is, you know, command line shell from the 80s. It's 
it doesn't have features like syntax highlighting. It doesn't have features like <laughs> right. auto complete, you know, auto completion, and so forth. So one of the ways that users learn about the fish shell is they just see it on other people's screens and other users' screens. They're like, "Wow, that looks really cool. How can I get that?" And it spreads by word of mouth. Yeah, that is definitely that has definitely been my experience. Um, not only how I found it, but how others have found it after they saw it on my screen. And um, you, you know, you described it as it's a personal thing. Uh, I used the word when I was chatting with Wes before we sat down. It's also like maybe the most intimate software I use on my computer because I'm not just interacting with it and clicking it. I'm communicating with it. Yeah, it sees everything that you run, and it, it enables you to use your machine. And there's not much software these days that I have like a very strong emotional opinion about where you could use – language like love as for how my how strongly I love Fishel like I really feel strongly about it. I don't I don't feel that way about a lot of software anymore, but Fishel is still one of them and so there's something special about about building a shell. So how the project's been around now what since 2005? The project is around since 2005. That was the first release. I am I was not on the uh, one of the original authors of the Fishel. That would that would right. be uh, Axel and I won't attempt his last name, but you can put it in show notes. Uh, and Axel started the project in 2005 as the first release, and I think development started to slow down around 2010, and that, that's when I picked it up. And I was a user of the fish shell, and there were just, I was very happy with it, but there were some uh, bugs I found or things that I thought could work a little differently, and I just decided to scratch my own itch and set out to fix them, and I figured it would take me a week, and then, you know, a year later, I was... I was uh, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> pretty embedded in it at that point. So that, that's how I got yeah. my start, just scratching my own itch. Well, um, isn't that interesting? How many stories have we heard like that where somebody starts scratching their own itch? You guys just recently had a big release too. I um, Was it version 3? Is that the new version that just came out? 3.0 or is it 0.3? It is 3.0. So this is our uh-huh. the third major release. The, uh, the the first major release with where I was um, on the project was 2.0 and 3.0 signals that we've, we've made some fairly uh, radical changes in this release, and that's why we think it deserves a, a new major version number. Could you chat a little bit more about those? Uh, one thing I've always liked about Fish is, you know, I have it on some systems, not all, unfortunately, but whenever I use it, I don't, I'm not concerned usually that things are going to break. It's mostly just works. So are there some things people really need to look out for when they upgrade here? There's a few things that are different, but we have a, you know, we're certainly, we, we don't want anyone to have an experience where they install it and their software breaks. So I'll, a lot of the changes are uh, backwards compatible. So, for example, we support now in 3.0 the uh, double ampersand for and or double pipe for or, a very long Yay. requested feature. Yeah. But the, the old syntax, the, uh, uh, the explicit and and or commands are still supported, so none of that breaks. Very good, yeah. We also have a, a way of staging breaking changes called feature flags, which allow users to opt into it. So these are changes that we plan to make in the future, and where the current syntax is deprecated. So this includes, for example, question mark as a glob. This this often breaks users who paste in a URL, and this will be interpreted oh, yes, as a wildcard. So with Fish 3.0, we, we plan to eventually remove the question mark wildcard. But in 3.0, you can opt into that removal by, by just setting a feature flag in one of your variables. So there's a lot of forward-looking features in the 3.0 release like that. Is the feature flag um, new to 3.0, or has that been around for a while? The whole mechanism of, of staging these, these deprecations and breaking changes is part of 3.0. Wow, and interesting. It, it signals a bit of a philosophical, uh, philosophical shift where we're trying to be a little less dogmatic and a little more practical and, and, and move a little faster, right? Uh, 
it is very rare to have any program, but especially a shell, remove features. Normally, they just accrete features mm-hmm. over time. So we mm-hmm. want to have the capability to have the right feature set, not just the sum of all past feature sets. Right. But how you actually pull that off is a little new in the world of shells, and <laughs> getting it right is important. That's right. <laughs> it is a little risky, so we'll see how it works out. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited to hear that. Um, kind of talking. Let's keep talking about the practical stuff for a moment. Um, one of the things I love about Fish Shell, to be honest with you, is I can load it everywhere. Fedora, Arch, Ubuntu, and even Mac OS, and probably the subsystem for Linux if I was on a Windows box. And um, I really appreciate that fact. Just it's one of the. I mean, obviously Bash is everywhere, but I don't want to use Bash, right? I want to use Fish. <laughs> so I'm curious, kind of like uh, roughly, is Linux your largest install base? Do you have? Uh, are there a bunch of Windows users? Like, what's the user base look like for Fish? Yeah, honestly, I don't know that. I mean, Linux and Mac are both huge, uh, the, the the largest users, uh, of course. But we don't track how many users there are from any. Uh, uh, particular platform, right? There's no telemetry in the fish shell, so we don't know. But we do have uh, a lot of actually surprising use cases we discover. Uh, the the team that is on uh, Haiku, which is the the BOS recreation, they have a lot of fish shell fans there, and they have fish shell running on Haiku. <laughs> That's awesome. It makes me really happy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, WSL, a Windows subsystem for Linux. We all, there's also a number of users there. I actually feel like WSL is a big opportunity for the fish shell because users who have WSL are less likely to be, you know, have a, a long history with Bash. So that they're coming at it with fresh eyes. Yes. I, I run I run it on my Raspberry Pi. I run it on AWS. Uh, we even have a user running Fish on the uh, TH2, which is a, a uh, 33 petaflot supercomputer in uh, in Guangzhou, China. <laughs> right I on. bet Fish runs just great on there. <laughs> I bet it does. Yeah, I bet it does. Fish has always been one of those projects where you install it and the defaults have just felt right. Um, I, I've been able to install Fish and then run it for six months before I even changed a single thing. I I really love it. And I think I, I think it's one of the projects that you can install on a new Linux user's computer and make the command line a little less intimidating. And that has massive potential. I agree completely. Uh, the, the, one of the design goals of Fish is that it, it be very user-friendly. And the way we design features is we start by thinking about like what is the what do we want the user to see, like, to encounter, and then we work backwards to the implementation of the feature from there. So, for example, setting your prompt can be done with uh, either via the command line or via a, a graphical UI. There's a command fish config, which spins up a little <laughs> web server and opens a yep. web page that connects to that, you know, all local. And there's nothing on the network here. and allows you to set your colors and your prompt and so forth just with a, a graphical UI. So that's, that's much more convenient for new users compared to, you know, for example, setting the, the PS1 variable for controlling your prompt that, like you would do in Bash. Which is how I had been doing it. You know, what's funny is I've I've been using Fish for years and years and years, and it was only until last week that I ran Fish Config for the first time and did it through the web page. I've always just done it, you know, the old way, the old school way, because I just I'm used to the way Bash does it. That's how you assumed you would do it. But that web page was great because there was pre-suggested themes and looks and styles for my command line that I love. 
I love. And it's, it's an example of making, again, the command line accessible to people that are maybe transitioning from another platform where you don't use the command line as much. And I think one of the things that makes Linux more usable as a platform is if we just acknowledge sometimes it's okay to use the command line. And people don't like that, but we can make the command line a better experience. Yeah, right. If we, if we just embrace that and mm-hmm. say, we have a great command line. Well, Peter, what else should people know about? Is there anything you want them to check out for the project or things you guys are working on or any, any destinations you want to send them? Uh, well, the the project is hosted on GitHub. We have a, a five contributors on the project, other than me, who are who are very regular and very passionate. Uh, I'd like to uh, um, give them some credit here because many of them are even more active than I am. Yeah, as in particular, I want to I want to uh, give credit to David Adam and uh, Fabian, who are both very long time contributors. And we have Aaron Guys, who's done a ton of great work across all parts of the shell. And we have Said Schwar, who was with me from the beginning, and uh, Mahmoud is our newest contributor, who's very uh, active and porting fish and getting it running well on on WSL. So it's, I'm really grateful for all their contributions. It's actually pretty easy to get started. Uh, contributing to the fish shell a lot of contributors just they have a command they want to run and tab completions aren't uh, working for it properly so they can just add a tab completion and that's a very easy way to get started or improving the documentation so if if you'd like to contribute mm. if you're a fish shell user it's very easy to get started contributing to the shell yeah i think especially in this case that seems that's more so than what is even i think common with an open source project like this. There's some stuff in there that is really user-facing, like documentation that anybody can participate in. Well, Peter, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks to you and the entire team for working on one of my absolute favorite pieces of open source software. All right. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Wes. And thank you to Peter for coming and chatting with us about that. Peter was great, real friendly. And it's an interesting tale because as as we talked about in that interview, at around uh, 2012, Fish development had really pretty had stagnated a considerable. It's it's very obvious if you go look at like the commit analysis over on GitHub. And Peter stepped in and sort of reinvigorated the project. And I've just had a recent release. He wasn't the one who released it, right? There's enough other people in the project that there are several main contributing developers. So it seems healthy. It's probably not for uh, some of some expert users. It, it might not even be a forever shell if you're going to go off and become like a, a terminal expert. But I think as a shell that thinks about what the interaction between a user and a computer should be in a terminal environment, they're exploring interesting grounds. He almost made me switch to it. He almost convinced me, but uh, almost. Well, you do need to be the curmudgeon, Joe. What would we do without you? (laughs) Okay, so let's move on to another area I've been excited about recently. That's gaming on Linux. And it's it's just some of my my friends who are, uh, you know, not... Not Linux desktop enthusiasts. They might not even listen to this show, but they make a lot of comments about how great Proton is, how how they can use their Linux desktops to game. And I've certainly experienced that. I've been advocating for it more. But while we were getting excited about that, we talked a lot about it here on Jupiter Broadcasting over our various holiday and year, year-end review episodes. There was a discussion right around the new year over on Twitter that I missed until now. Uh, it, it started with a tweet from... Ben Golis, who works over at Uber Entertainment, actually local here, over in Kirkland, Washington, they make Planetary Annihilation. And, well, the discussion is basically they they shipped Planetary Annihilation on Windows, Mac, and Linux. Linux users were actually a big part, vocal part of the Kickstarter for the project. But in the end, they accounted for less than 0.1% of the sales. 
at greater than 20% of auto-reported crashes and support tickets. Most of that graphics driver-related, I guess. His opinion would totally skip Linux. So does this mean, is this, a, is this a fundamental problem? Is there something we're missing here? Or does it just mean that much like Electron apps, we're going to get games, we just won't get them natively? I think that that is the reality of the situation because if you look at this Twitter thread, it's easy to kind of come down on the side of, well, it's just not worth supporting Linux. But then people have chipped in on the Hacker News thread about this that surfaced this week saying that, well, they did it wrong. They didn't go into it with their eyes fully open. They kind of thought it would be easy to port it to Linux. And the reality dawned on them that it was actually quite hard. And I think in that Twitter thread, there's there's a very, very depressing and telling phrase that he says, adding Linux support ended up likely costing Uber hundreds of thousands of dollars for a few hundred dollars in sales. And that just doesn't look good for anyone trying to port any software to Linux, never mind just games. Yeah, that is true, right? And that's part of the problem is even if we have a more successful game development story in 2019, you might not know about it. You might not know the right choices. You might not, like, that's that's hard to find. There is no universal development kit to target. You can be an expert at game development and still not be able to develop for our platform and have it be a success, and yeah, that's concerning. When the whole Proton thing broke as a story, there was kind of two ways to look at it. One is that, okay, well, this means that no one will bother developing natively for Linux anymore. But the other way to look at it was, well, it will enable a lot of Linux users to use these games, play these games that they otherwise couldn't before, and it will potentially make people who are on the fence about switching to Linux make that switch. And then where the users are, the development goes. I think that realistically, it's probably the former rather than the latter though, isn't it? That you're much more likely to get just Windows games working and tested with Proton and that's good enough. Why bother doing a whole native port when you can just use this off-the-shelf solution from Valve? Yep, that that is true. And and then even even more so, we're still, even with it working really well, just with out, out of Valve, you're still going to buy a computer that probably has Windows on it and... Uh, if you're a gamer but not a Linux fan, there's not gonna there's not gonna be a big reason that you should ever switch to Linux. Now you you might have a better switching story if you eventually happen to listen to this program today, but we're just still same old same old, I guess. I don't know though. Was my Evo 970 didn't come with Windows on it? It came completely blank, and I had to install whatever I wanted onto it. And that's the reality for most gamers who build their PC. I mean, most enthusiasts who want to go full RGB and all of that they build their machines. So this argument of that they come with Windows, I don't think is necessarily true. Obviously, laptops come with Windows, but if you're doing a self-build and no self-respecting gamer would use a, a pre-built desktop, surely. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, of course. But they just consider Windows to be part of that build. No, that's a that's a very interesting point. Like, um, there's, a, there's this cultural element. So if we can maybe change some of that, then... If you're already an enthusiast, you're willing to do research, you're willing to maybe tweak or tune, Linux Linux has a, is, it does have a better story there now. Yeah, but you only have to look at big gaming and PC YouTube channels like Linus Tech Tips. And, you know, he had this video, Linux gaming doesn't suck because the assumption was that it would just suck. And then he actually tried some Linux games and said, actually, 
they're all right. And that was a surprise. And, and that's that culture, isn't it? That gaming really is all about Windows. That's just been the assumption for 20 plus years that if you want to play games on a PC, you, you're using Windows to do that. Yeah, I suppose you're right. And uh, unfortunately, there are still many workflows that you ne- might need a Windows or or another proprietary operating system to get your work done. And one of those for a long time, and still remains one, is the Adobe platform. Their whole creative suite of applications. I know, I mean, I've, I've used them over the years, I don't have them now, but they're obviously the standard, and Linux users for a long time have been wondering... Are we? Do we have even a shot of ever getting these applications? You've done some hard work and found out a little bit more information, though, Joe. Yeah, I've been chatting with Jason Evangelo, who has become well-known in the last kind of few months, I suppose the back half of last year, for writing for Forbes. He kind of switched from writing about gaming and hardware to writing about Linux as he got into Linux, and it's just become really, really popular. Everyone seems to be um, following on Twitter and reading his articles. And more importantly, it seems that he has driven a lot of people into our community, people who are into gaming or kind of on the fence or whatever. He is uh, really doing good stuff for the whole Linux community, as far as I can see. And he's very pragmatic. I know, okay, some people are going to say, oh, we don't want that proprietary software. Why don't you just <laughs> right. use Kanan Live or whatever, or GIMP or Krita. But the reality is that if we are going to grow the the Linux user base, we're going to need some of these huge proprietary commercial bits of software like Creative Cloud. And he is very much of that belief. He's very much a pragmatist. We need both, right? We should have good open source technology, but uh, we also need to use what the market's using. Well, in an ideal world, we wouldn't need any proprietary software at all. But it's um, a vicious circle of... The proprietary software isn't there, so the users don't come to the platform, and then the developers don't develop open source software for them to use. So I think it's it's hard for me to say that I want this proprietary software to come to Linux because I don't think I would use very much of it if it did, but I think that an awful lot of people would, and that would be better overall for Linux because this is all additional stuff. It's like the Proton stuff. It's like Steam. It's like... The, the graphics drivers, you don't have to use any of that stuff. You can run Debian or Triskel or whatever and just run completely free software. That's a good point. It's, it's all additions to Linux and free software. So I, I see it as a good thing. But um, yeah, he, he had a chance to uh, talk to some people from uh, Adobe, some quite important people actually. And so I thought that I would catch up with him and uh, get him on the show and speak to him about how that went. And uh, so should we have a listen to that? Let's do it. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, Jason. Yeah, you bet. Happy to be here. Yeah, we've been wanting to get you on Linux Unplugged for a long time, and uh, finally the timings have worked out. Yeah, you know, and uh, before, when you asked me the first time around, I was really shy, and now I'm not, so. (laughs) (laughs) So just a little bit of background. You've been writing for Forbes for quite a while now, and in the relatively recent past, you started writing about Linux, and those articles Mm -hmm. have really taken off. And you've used um, your Twitter following as well to kind of help that. And it's just kind of a bit crazy, hasn't it? It has. Uh, I mean, in a very unexpected way. You know, when you spend like six years at a, you know, on a major platform talking about, you know, AMD and NVIDIA, you know, and uh, Intel and reviewing, you know, big products and things like that or just breaking news. And then (laughs) six years later, 
you, uh, you, you kind of stumble into Linux for the first time in like 13 years and fall in love with it. And at that point, um, I, I gradually decided, you know, I'm, I'm loving this. I'm loving the, the discovery and, and really loving just writing about it and being so engaged on, on Twitter and Facebook with, with people who are enjoying the content. It's been a repeatable thing where, you know, I will take, say I'm writing two articles in one day and I'll, I'll say, okay, hey, IntroWare is launching their, uh, you know, their Ares all-in-one desktop PC with Ubuntu and uh, Ubuntu Mate, right? And then the same day I'll write something about NVIDIA and the IntroWare article will get more traffic and it blows me away every single time, but it is becoming a consistent thing. And I think that there's a really, um, at least to me, a surprisingly large audience who is hungry for that that content in kind of a, I guess, non-technical, like more conversational um, a manner, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it seems to be working for you. I've seen you post stats about um, the Linux articles being the most popular of all time, almost. Yeah, I wrote, I, uh, towards the end of the year, I wrote about uh, Deepin. And it was just kind of an opinion piece, you know, talking about why I think that it's uh, a more beautiful uh, desktop experience than, than Windows and Mac OS. And within a few weeks, that climbed to the number three most viewed article since 2012. Hmm. We're talking about like beatings, you know, stuff like Pokemon Go when it launched and wow. things like that. I mean, yeah, incredible. Just incredible. I, I, I'm, I'm still blown. Like months later, I'm just still blown away. And it's been it's been a blast. But just before Christmas, there was a bit of a blow up on Twitter about Adobe and uh, Premiere, Premiere, and people requesting that for Linux. And you managed to send so much traffic their way that they shut down the topic. <laughs> they so did. what was all that about? They did. Um, uh, I think that, you know I actually I actually heard about it through uh, a couple of my Twitter followers and also um, Michael at Foronix. And, you know, I, I want to make sure people understand he's the one who wrote it first, right? I just kind of elevated it and gave it a bit more exposure. But um, I do want to make sure that people realize he kind of broke that, that news. Um, but anyway, I wrote an article uh, saying, hey, Adobe wants your feedback on bringing Premiere Pro to Linux. And uh, the, tweet, the tweet blew up, the article blew up. And I think within three or four days, they had somewhere north of 6,000 uh, upvotes for that. And a lot of really healthy discussion in there between both the Linux community and a lot of the uh, Adobe uh, staff, you know, like, like uh, I think it was Patrick Palmer who does, um, he's their senior product manager for professional video editing for Creative Cloud. And it, I, I, at some point, someone alerted me to the fact that it was just gone. They're like, I'm trying to click the link in your article. It's just not there. It's nowhere. It's gone. And uh, Adobe, uh, Adobe Help actually got, got in touch with me. And, and they said that it had received uh, so much, like a surge in upvotes that it had triggered their spam filters. And they had taken it down. They just had no idea that it would be so popular. <laughs> so... So that that got resolved, and it, yeah, that got resolved soon, and that was that was good. And then people kept on voting. So after that, sometime after that, uh, Adobe's um, help account on Twitter actually reached out to me, and they were like, "Hey, Bill Roberts and Patrick Palmer would would love to just chat with you about your um, 
you know, your point of view as someone in the Linux community, you know, uh, looking at the possibility of, of Adobe products being ported over to Linux. And I said, great, let's, let's do it. And so, yeah, we got on the phone like four or five days later and we had a really great chat. But before you had this chat with them, they did officially respond and say something along the lines of that, you know, we take this interest very seriously, but don't get your hopes up. There's a lot of fragmentation with Linux and it's not just supporting one platform. It means supporting loads of different ones and basically saying, yeah, thanks for the interest, but don't hold your breath. Yeah. And, and I think that that uh, discouraged a lot of people, but I, you know, in a way, Joe, I kind of appreciate them for not getting people's hopes up. Yeah. You know, um, although through the course of the chat we had, uh, it became apparent to me that what matters right now is that this is a possibility. And this is what they told them. This is what Bill and Patrick said. They're like, this is a possibility now. They weren't entertaining this idea before. Oh, wow. So it really has made a difference then. It really has. Um, and, you know, I don't know if, if it was, uh, let's be honest, it probably wasn't the, the, the user voice uh, post and, and feedback that, that prompted that, but it may have helped, right? It may have definitely changed or influenced maybe their timeline or, you know, brought a few other uh, important members of the team over to the Linux side of the fence. I don't know. But what matters is that they are looking at this as something that's possible now. And when they said that there was this fragmentation problem, everyone replied to them saying, snaps, flat packs, snaps, flat packs. Yeah. <laughs> Is that something that they weren't aware of or, or what? They're very aware of it. Um, and, you know, I kind of brought that up. Uh, you know, I said, hey, you can, you know, you can use stuff like Vulkan. You can focus maybe on just one distro and don't spread yourself too thin. And, but they're they're completely aware of all of the you know the technical environments surrounding what it would take to port Premiere Pro over to Linux. But uh, Patrick's problem is that there's a major difference between developing and testing, right? Because sure, they could develop it for Ubuntu, but it's it, it will get used on other distributions, right? And there's all these combinations of of distro and CPU and GPU and everything else. And the cost of testing those and, and scaling that up is, is what concerns them. But beyond that, they want the product on, on everything it could possibly be used on, right? And they want to come out of the gate flawlessly, even though they're, they're very aware. And they, they told me this, they're very aware that they could haphazardly release something on one distribution and maybe everything doesn't work. And they know the community will make it work. Right, but that's not how they want to do it. They want to come out of the gate flawlessly. And one other aspect of this is that the conversation isn't just about developing Premiere Pro. And a lot of people, I think that a lot of people in the Linux community think, why not just do that? Right? That that can't take a lot of resources. It can't take a lot of time. But Adobe's issue is that their users are tapping into their entire ecosystem. Right? They they have a workflow that normally extends beyond just a single Adobe app. Well, yeah, people want the whole creative cloud, don't they? Exactly. And so that is <laughs> bringing the entire creative cloud is a it would seem to me to be a monumental effort. And they just don't want their their products coming onto Linux handicapped and and kind of robbing users of of what they've come to expect from their products, right? And there you know, another wrinkle to this is that Obviously, they want to achieve some some you know levels of parity when we're talking about performance, right? 
they want to have um, parity between you know Mac OS and Windows and Linux. But that's only half the story. If all the third-party libraries don't support the format, having that great performance is kind of useless. So it's re- it really is that entire ecosystem that has to start coming together. Yeah, suddenly this becomes quite a large endeavor, sort of almost too much to take on. Yeah, but uh, yes, I mean, yes. Uh, and they did have a lot of interesting things to say about enterprise. I mean, not, not, in, not in a lot of detail, but um, that's where they would focus first. I, I will tell you that. That's, that's where Adobe would focus first is the enterprise. But here's what's, here's what's really interesting. The path to having these Adobe products on Linux, where, where do you think that would happen? Would it be just a straight port, or is there something actually coming that would kind of get their foot in the door? What do you mean by something coming? I mean, I would assume that the path to getting it on Linux would be Snaps, essentially, or possibly Flatpak. Yeah, and I don't, I don't have an argument for or against that. Um, but I think when we're talking about like the the architecture and the development and the, just the knowledge that their their engineers and developers need, uh, it's actually Premiere Rush. All right. So Premiere Rush, it's probably you guys know, is um, kind of a mobile light version of Premiere Pro, and it's already on desktop. It's already on iOS, but it was strongly hinted to me <laughs> that once it comes to Android this year, that is their kind of first step. Ah, right. Interesting. And I wish I could tell you more, but that's really all that I know. I can just tell you that the the way that they were explaining it to me and the uh, kind of the, you know, the the attitude that they were portraying and the enthusiasm, don't take this as the gospel truth or anything, but it's really, I really feel like it's, you know, once this hits Android, it's something that they can legitimately start to explore. Did the market share issue come up at all? Because <laughs> that must be in their mind. Uh, it, 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 it really didn't. Uh, and I don't know if, I don't know if that's just because they were, you know, trying to be polite. Uh, and I also didn't bring it up. I was really encouraged walking away from that conversation because they don't view bringing their products to Linux. They don't see it as a technical barrier. They know how to get there, right? And I think the larger issue for them is having some reassurance that all of the effort that they invest into it, uh, into not just Premiere Pro, but the entire Creative Cloud suite, into the testing and, and scaling and you know for, for every distribution and making sure that the entire ecosystem is working as it should on other major operating systems. It's, it's encouraging to me that they know all that, right? And that they are in the process of developing Premiere Rush for Android, kind of hinting at the fact that it helps them with uh, potential Linux development. I was really happy walking away from that because it wasn't... A lot of the Linux community, at least who's, um, that has interacted with me about this whole Adobe thing, they feel like Adobe's just giving them lip service, you know? Like, ah, we're going to get your hopes up and we'll do this poll and, you know, we'll make you think it's possible and then we're just going to slam the door shut in your face. And that may have been true in the past, but I, I genuinely don't believe that's true now. And I, I think it's something they're at least open to and it's just a matter of resources and, and time. And market share, probably. Let's, let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. Well, it'll be very interesting to see what happens with it, whether or not it is just lip service. But hopefully you'll be clued into what's happening and you can maybe come back and let us know. 
But it's been great to have you on and um, very much look forward to speaking to you again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Joe. Yes, thank you, Mr. Joe. That was a great contribution and a great interview with Jason. You know, he has been, uh, he's been doing a lot of great writing these days. And he's definitely a uh, friend of the network. Yeah, could you tell that I'd uh, only just woken up and it was still daylight? You know, I wasn't going to bring that up and no. Actually, I don't think I could tell, so good job. <laughs> it was uh, it was a good chat and yeah, he's uh, he's a very interesting guy. And uh, yeah, I'd definitely recommend checking out his articles on Forbes. He's he's always got a positive spin on everything. That, that is actually what I was, um, I have a question for you about it, but I was that was going to be my takeaway from that interview is, all right, well, there's nothing concrete there. Um, Nothing's changed, really, but it's also not a bad thing, you know? Um, I mean, obviously, Adobe runs a massive cloud platform. They clearly deploy a lot of Linux servers and have a wide array of technical experts at their employ. So, of course, they know about Linux, but it's nice to hear that there's not this, like, horrible bias or rejection or just, you know, like, developers being tired of hearing this, like, very vocal minority of people clamor for support so it seems like there's a there's a positive relationship we can actually build on here and it might not be anything soon but there are professionals who use linux yeah and it does feel like it's going to be medium term rather than short term but they are clued into the fact that linux users do want to use their software do want to pay them money and as windows and mac os seems to get worse and worse and linux seems to get better and better then you never know, maybe we'll get that critical mass of users and maybe they will pull the trigger on it. Right, and I mean, they already have to adapt to a changing marketplace uh, while you know Windows and Mac might still dominate the the creative design markets. Mobile, mobile is huge, right? It's, it's eating the desktop market share all the time. So they've already worked on some, some stuff for that platform. So I've, I've talked to a couple people inside Adobe as well, and they're, they're actually, that, that platform's surprised, surprisingly modular. They have a lot of high-level code and infrastructure to sort of orchestrate on top. So I, it was interesting to hear Jason talk about that the, the technicals aren't the problem, and it, 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 that, that it comes down to something like, you know, not wanting to cripple the product, wanting to, wanting to have a good reputation. That's a very business sort of concern that I think sometimes we in the open source world forget about. Yeah, it is all about dollars and cents at the end of the day, isn't it? Right, I mean, it, 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 I guess it has to be because that's what that's what keeps the whole thing going and clearly there's a lot of people who, who use and rely on their products, so I can't blame them. Time will tell. Maybe go try some free and open source software and uh, submit bug reports and see if you can make them a little bit better. Yep. All right, do you want to hear about my toy then? Yes, I do. We teased it a little bit at the top of the show. You were very gracious, despite being woken up early by this delivery of something you've been expecting for quite some time, I believe. What did you get? Yeah, I've been wanting this for quite some time and um, finally sorted it out. This is an EntraWare Apollo laptop. Now, I have to uh, say quickly, full disclosure, EntraWare do sponsor my other show, uh, my independent show, Late Night Linux, but this will be completely unbiased. I can't do a full review because I've only had it for a matter of hours, and I did go back to sleep briefly today as well. So <laughs> <laughs> You deserve to, you deserve to. Yeah, I haven't had much time with it, so it's really just first impressions. But I'm pretty pleased with it so far. Turning it on straight away, the screen was just super bright, super sharp, and um, yeah, really, really impressed. This is their 14-inch Ultrabook that I'm talking about here called Apollo. Right, okay, so, so Chris had an Apollo as well, and I've used that somewhat extensively, but but is this right? That that was a 13-inch screen size, 
but the form factor hasn't actually changed? Yeah, it's the same chassis, but smaller bezels. Oh, I like it. Yeah, so they've squeezed that 14-inch screen into it, and that gives you that extra little bit of real estate. It's 1080p. We're not talking about crazy 4K or anything. And on a 14-inch screen, do you really need any more than 1080p? I certainly don't. No, no. I mean, I think I think you probably need a bigger screen if you're going to really leverage those resolutions. But some people like it. And, you know, you've seen, even on some of the, the low-end uh, Mac products, some pretty high resolutions. Yeah. Well, there's, there are some bad sides to this. Um, it's got USB-C, but that is not Thunderbolt. So there's no external graphics to be had. But then again... I'm not going to go buy an external enclosure and a graphics card. If I want a serious graphics card, I'll put it in my desktop machine. Thank you very much. This is supposed to be light and portable. Was that a dig at Mr. Martin Wimpress on a day that he's not here? <laughs> well, I just don't really understand why you would use that. If you're tethered to a desk and a, an external screen anyway, why not just use a proper desktop machine? I don't understand all this Thunderbolt business, but I know some people are into it. And, and storage as well, obviously, is going to be faster over Thunderbolt. But um, it has got some full-size um, old-school USB, uh, although they are 3.1, so that's nice. And it's got DisplayPort and full-size HDMI and an SD card slot and gigabit Ethernet. You don't Ooh. often get that these days on an Ultrabook. And that's important when you have uh, a lot of wave files to upload. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's also got a headphone jack, which you can't really take for granted these days, can you? No, you have to check. It's a little awkward. It's sort of like trying to be like, uh, what? Uh, what's going on here? You're holding it up to the light. Oh, yeah, th- there it is. <laughs> okay, so um, there's, there's some questions in the IRC I just have to ask. As someone who has used one but never bought one, is this just a rebadged Clevo? What's going on with Entraware? Well, Clevo is the ODM. Um, but there are some less scrupulous vendors, resellers, you might say, who just buy Clevo stuff and then just sell it. Whereas what Entraware does is they very carefully select the parts. It's it's a Clevo um, chassis, um, but they make sure that the parts that they're putting inside this thing actually are going to work with Linux properly. And they also make sure that the firmware and everything's working. And that's why... There are some vendors who who punt out the new Clevo machines quite quickly without fully testing this firmware stuff, whereas Entraware sometimes wait a little bit and make sure that everything is going to work. And, you know, that was my first impression of it um, with Ubuntu. Okay, I don't really like GNOME, I think it's fair to say. but um, <laughs> Right, yep, yep. It, it worked perfectly. Everything worked as you should. It was a very good experience. It was very much a stock Ubuntu installation, you know, it, it wasn't long before I put Zubuntu on it, you know, obviously. But from, from what I saw of the Ubuntu installation, it was very stock and everything just worked perfectly. And with Zubuntu as well, so far, so good. I've not come into any problems at all. See, that's a that's a really good point because, you know, there aren't there aren't that many ODMs in the world. And so really whatever you buy, you're you're just hoping that the person who assembled it did a good job of choosing equivalent parts. So if you've got a little bit of a guarantee that oh, well, the people who sold me this are at least aware that uh, Linux is a thing, and in this case, actually optimize for it. Well, you can. it might not be the fanciest, it might not have the smallest bezels, but it'll run Ubuntu. Yeah, someone's asking about uh, suspend in the IRC. I've never suspended a laptop. If Once you've got an NVMe drive in there, it boots so quickly that there's just no need to suspend it. Oh, really? See, that's funny. I, I feel like I used to have that. I, that was my workflow for a long time, but... Now I just close my laptop lid and forget about it. 
I don't know. I just I like to have it either on or off. I mean, it's not it's not secure. It's not you know th- that's totally reasonable, and it's nice to actually reboot your machine. You know that your update didn't pork anything. All of those things. Yeah, I'm just surprised. I'm so used to. I just don't even. There's, it goes probably weeks without rebooting. Yeah, I don't know. I reboot my machines all the time because now that storage is so fast. This thing, you turn it on, and before you've even, you know, taken a sip of your drink, it's booted. So, you know, that, that's the same with all modern machines with with decent storage yes. in them. So for me, suspend's just not not really a thing anymore. The nice part too is if you don't if you don't reboot all the time, then you uh, you forget what you have to do when you reboot. Maybe adding SSH keys or entering permissions or relogging into something. And of course, the moment that you have rebooted is probably the time that you really didn't want to. Yeah, exactly. One nice thing about this is it's got a 2.5 bay as well. So if you want to put spinning rust in it or a larger SATA SSD, you can do that. I'm not going to do that, I don't think. I've got a 500 gig um, Samsung SSD NVMe in there, which I think will do me for now. But it's good to know that I've got that option if I want to. Yeah, right. Um, that, that's something that you always want to look for is, is this serviceable? Will it have a lifetime? Can I upgrade it when I want and need to? Now, most users might not, but in our audience, well, that that's a great way to get more life out of your machine. Yeah. Well, as for upgrading it, it's really, really easy. It's like 10 screws or something. Oh, yeah. And then the, the bottom just comes off, and it supports up to 32 gigs of RAM, which is really nice. So you can get all the VMs, essentially, <laughs> running on it. It's easy to take that for granted. I mean, I've, I've owned several laptops where you have to take the whole main board out before you can even get to the hard drive. So the fact that it's 10 screws and, you know, Bob's your uncle, pff, great. Yeah, you can up- upgrade both storage and the RAM. It's very user serviceable, and you could even swap out the fan and stuff if you wanted to, you know, if, down the line if the, if anything goes wrong with that. So yeah, pretty impressed with it so far. But um, yeah, I, I can't really say that I've lived with it long enough. Right. So maybe I'll have to uh, give you an update at some point. Is this going to become a uh, distro review machine or just a just a mobile workstation for you? No, very much not. It means that uh, my old, old laptop is going to become like the full-time distro review machine. This is very much production. I've got my main desktop for right. main production, but this is my take to Linux Fest Northwest machine. And so you'll, it'll be uh, probably a Zubuntu, you said? Yeah, yeah, Zubuntu. No, no deviance there. All right, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Thank you for that mini uh, preview of the Entroware. I'm sure we're going to find out a lot more as you actually use this machine. I'll be curious to give it a hands-on look when I get to see you at Linux Fest Northwest. That's a great chance. We should just talk about Linux Fest Northwest. It's their 20th anniversary this year. And if you've never gone before, it's a great time to go. We've got links to all of that and everything we talked about today. LinuxUnplugged.com slash 283. Now, Joe, I'm just ever so grateful that you came and uh, hung out here with us today. Where can the audience go to find more of you? Well, Linux Action News is uh, a good one, linuxactionnews.com and error.show. If you want to listen to user error, that's me and Popey and Dan from elementary talking about life, the universe and everything and a bit of Linux chucked in there. So yeah, check those two out. And also uh, latenightlinux.com if you want to to hear me effing and blinding, effing and a jeffing. And you almost always do. (laughs) Thank you to our wonderful Mumble Room, as always, and of course the IRC and everyone else in the Jupiter Broadcasting community. LinuxUnplugged.com slash contact if you want to send us some of your favorite things, either interesting interesting finds, questions, or, or just your comments and feedback. We love it all. For all the other Jupiter Broadcasting shows, jupiterbroadcasting.com. 
Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to get out of here, but, but don't worry. There's lots of good stuff to look forward to. I'm always excited about the next user error release. Just let me say, Joe. So good job. Thank you for joining us. And I think we're going to see you next Tuesday. Come on, Wes. You can do better than that next Tuesday. Yeah, you're right. Tuesday! father an iPad, mostly so he could read some like journalism, you know, various apps from from bigger newspapers than his uh, tiny dying hometown newspaper. And he used like a Windows, oh, I don't know, was it an XP machine? I don't know, whatever, whatever his, before he retired, right? And so he has this very particular interface with computers and I've got, I've got my mom on Linux now. And part of me wonders he might just actually take to the command line because it's sort of a conversation in, and less less of an exploration visually. And so, like, but Bash is kind of arcane. And if you if you know what you're doing with Bash or ZSH or really any shell, you can obviously configure most of the stuff that you find. But with Fish, it just, like, it, it really is friendly. And that friendly only goes so far, and once you're an expert, you probably don't care about friendly. But for new users... Like if you first got a fish shell and then you learn bash, there's probably a lot of bash things that you would think were so silly. Don't you find that fish kind of does things by itself too much though? At least with bash, you type stuff in, you press enter, okay, you've got tab completion, but if you don't know about that, you're not going to get it. Whereas you start typing and then just things happen and you're like, it's a bit scary for people who don't know what they're doing. Okay, I can I can see I can see that. You probably do need in uh, like a basic introduction, you probably do need a little bit about that. Like you probably have to touch on that feature. It feels like to me you have to have used Bash and have some vague understanding of how it works before you could use Fish. I guess I could see that with the very, very present autocomplete, I could see that being confusing. Yeah. But if you, I wonder if you started off from a blank shell, like with no autocomplete history, and if it would make more sense that it, that it would like, if it was only commands that they had typed that got suggested to them again, if that would be better. I don't know. It would be an interesting experience in, uh, in user experience research. Yeah. I can't see many companies putting money into that, though, unfortunately. No, no, that's exactly what I was thinking. No one's, no one's funding that.